You're listening to Extra Textual. This is a show where we talk about an idea, concept, theme, trend, and related to some kind of media like film, TV, video games, books, music, and hopefully discover something about ourselves or our culture along the way. Thanks for listening. Welcome back for part two of our best of 2017 episodes. We're going to jump right back into our conversation, listing off our best TV and film choices for last year, including our special guest, friend of the podcast, David Klein. Hope you enjoy it. Let's move into talking about film. Moving to film. Moving to film. Uh, One thing I wanted to mention is I think this is like the first year where with so much so many things moving to streaming and you know amazon and netflix and hulu creating original content that in the past there was always like movies that i knew i had to catch up with by the end of the year that i didn't have a chance to see there's always those but i knew i would sort of like watch them at some point you know get around to it but this year i just felt so much more overwhelmed with there's a lot of good stuff and I, there's just no way that I can watch all this. Um, there's so many interesting things happening between TV and film that I, it's just like in my life, there's no way that I can like watch all this. And I think this is the first year that that's happened. So as we enter into the film part, um, maybe we can throw out some things that we have not had a chance to see yet. Oh, come on. Can we talk about Thor first? Can we do Thor first? Yeah. Have, uh, 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 have you seen Thor, David? The, the Thor's on your list, right? The third one, yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, so there's I, Thor, Ragnarok. Um, there's a couple things that I want to say about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, just vis-a-vis the movie itself, mm-hmm. um, there are some tremendous gags. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, as a person, uh, hate the character of Thor. Mm. I find him <laughs> the most boring superhero <laughs> ever. And I find him and his brother annoying mm. to no end, and I can't stand them. The actors themselves? Uh, no, no, the characters. Uh, oh, oh I Loki. see. Loki in it. Yeah. I, I yeah. thought you meant the Hemsworth. No, no. Uh, Chris Hemsworth is a, uh, a totally adorable man Delightful who I would man. gladly watch do just about anything <laughs> on screen. Really? And I th- okay. I mean, and, I mean, I mean, but I think like the first Thor film – he is great, you know, when he's like throwing the glass on the ground and you know asking mm-hmm. for more. He, the, the, he's great as a fish out of water mm-hmm. with his like flannel and his jeans. Yeah. Second mm-hmm. Thor movie, pile of garbage. Um, third Thor movie, third Thor movie, something completely different. Um, and they they really play up the humor. And not only do they play up the humor of the situation he's in, he he actually is making fun of himself mm-hmm. from the beginning. You know, yeah. like when he's like when, he, when he's like when he's trying to. He, when the enemy's trying to grandstand and monologue, which is a, a trope I always love, um, and it also signals That's the that we key are too right because in the first one the jokes are made at his expense, as you said. Yeah, yeah, he, you know he's he's a funny. The, the situation is funny, but he he, he doesn't recognize it. There's no mm-hmm. levity. Like he's serious right. in a world that's like, wait, he's, what are you? What are you he's doing? Breaking coffee cups. He's not right. cracking jokes at the bad guys. Yeah, and so you know, and it's almost—I mean, if, to, to use the comic book language, I mean, I think he he switches from like you know this silver silver age to golden age character <laughs> where he's self-aware, you know, that like, he's Thor, you know, or at least the the writers write him that way. And so that happens at the beginning, and then shortly afterwards, 
uh, but yada, 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 things happen, and his hammer gets smashed, mm. which is another one of my favorite tropes when you have, like, your main hero lose their central power. Like, what yeah. do they do? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, turns out the lightning is inside of him, or blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but um, Thor without his hammer, interesting. Because without with the hammer, he's like, well, he can smash anything, he's indestructible, and he can command lightning. Um, and apparently only loses when he wants to or some <laughs> absurd thing. He so, loses um, his hair too, I think, which is also important. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah. So just lots of good stuff. Then – so like vis-a-vis the film, funny. My wife and I both enjoyed it. She doesn't normally like films like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean I really like the director. You know, um, he did uh, Eagle vs. Shark. He did – Taika Waititi. Um, what's that? Isn't it, that's Taika Waititi, Taika Waititi, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I always not try to pronounce his name, so I just don't say it. Um, but uh, yeah, and he did um, uh, What We Do in the Shadows, that sort of campy um, uh, vampire documentary spoof. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and so, and you know, he's uh, from Oceania. Um, and uh, I, I've always sort of loved the style of his films. So. You know, seeing him take this reminds me of like when Sam Raimi takes over Spider Man, yeah. and you have like somebody with some really distinct style taking on like a more traditional thing. And I think that like Sam Raimi's Spider Man is much more mainstream than um, this director's Thor, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, like I just love it. Um, and the other thing, so like that's one, like I think the film itself is like entertaining and fun and self aware and enjoyable, and the characters are much more, uh, much more fun. Um, and then there's this, there was a sneaking suspicion as I was watching it that like there's, there's we're harping on elements of this narrative that I that don't seem to have a, a great deal of cinematic effect but have more of like a philosophical effect like the mm-hmm. discussion of like the, there's the scene when there's the, the great dome which shows um, like um, Odin and his great riches establishing peace over the land and his daughter this manifestation of death has come back and, sh- and, and is telling everyone this a sham mm-hmm. and shatters it and shows the true Odin like striding with death at his hand you know conquering and subduing you know the nine realms or seven realms or how many realms there are um, I read an article um, in uh, this sort of like alternative feminist um, and other sorts of things, intersectional website called The Establishment, which was like its claim. It's a like, claim. Um, Thor Ragnarok is a subversive takedown of white supremacy, you know, by a subaltern uh, post-colonial voice. And I was like, oh, that it totally is. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, there's the way in which, um, you know, his daughter, this uh, this secret subjugated uh, horrible violence is uh, sort of washed out of the story. And Odin's like, I, I am a careful i'm like a happy uh you know peacekeeper for all these places i protect them and care for them mm-hmm. and she's like they're under your control because you slaughtered their people and <laughs> subjugated them you know and, and the way in which white supremacy you know in the colonial context um often it absolutely masks the violence and power by which it used to gain its protector status i mean you see this in places all over africa you see it in, in places in india like where i studied um and it's a you know and, and so it's 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 cool and not surprising that this new zealand director um i think very intentionally did that in this film mm-hmm. um and it just it harkened back to something that i loved about um comic books like when they weren't cool is that they were often places where people could tell these stories that would not make it into sort of like a mainstream audience they weren't right. ready for it they weren't accepting you know mm-hmm. you know um, like the characters of hawk and dove in the world you have sort of like this, this sort of early homosexuality in comic books um and even like the i've talked about it before but like the, the way in which like the x-men 
are like these uh, for a lot of gay men growing up in my generation are these iconic characters because mm-hmm. they were like uh, uh, a successful group of misfits like they didn't right. belong anywhere mm-hmm. um, and that has something that has like the the people that didn't fit into society's basic stuff or norms they always sort of ended up there mm-hmm. um, and so I was really happy to see a comic book piece of media mm-hmm. um apparently or you know i, I make the case i intentionally taking that on mm-hmm. which is super fun yeah um and, and you can with those kinds of stories you can sort of hide that stuff in there or you can get away yeah with it and and, and you know it's like and even as i watch like ash versus evil dead which is uneven but indulgent <laughs> um you know there's also these other stories like mm-hmm. that are um, you know, it's both entertaining, but it also has these sort of deeper stories about what it is to be a hero, what it is to like come from a small town, um, and all these other sorts of things. Um, and so I just was, well, I mean, my experience with Thor Ragnarok, I'll sum it up as this, is um, I, I saw the second one, which was like, often felt to me like a boring period piece <laughs> where I'm supposed to care about these races that I like, and these people that like, I don't like, mm. oh, it's, oh, this thing, and I don't care. Um but the third one, you know, I saw the preview and I was like, is that like a – that's the trailer? Like, yeah, right. you know, there's a, there's the one with trailer. him and like, you know, um, Hulk. And he's like, we're a work friend. He's a work friend. And I'm like, what, what is going on? Yeah. You know, and so I was like, maybe they – and I read a review. It's like, oh, they made it can't be and funny. I was like, can't be and funny? Thor, <laughs> tell me more. You know, and I went and was really excited. And I've actually seen it twice. We watched it like I, – um, I think because it was on – I think we watched, like rented it on like mm-hmm. Amazon, you know, for five yeah. or four dollars, and I watched it mm-hmm. twice within that time period. <laughs> um, but what did you, uh, what, what, what did you think about it, David? I, I'll be the first to admit I'm not a, a giant MCU fan. I'm not a big fan of Marvel comic movies in general. I think that actually, to 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 draw back to uh, an earlier episode you guys did again to reference the the great. Professor Colin Burnett, uh, he mentioned that, you know, one of Disney's problems with overseeing both the Star Wars and, and the Marvel intellectual properties, respectively, is that they're they're sort of in this kind of holding pattern, right? They're sort of, they're treading water and they don't always necessarily know what to do outside of sticking to this template. And I feel like that holds true for a lot of the Marvel movies. And what I liked about Thor Ragnarok is that it's really bucking up against all of those expectations, there's really all of the sort of expected tropes about, you know, the good guy banishing the bad guy. I mean, bear in mind, this movie ends with them literally blowing up Asgard, like, right? Like, that's important to note. But, the, you know, at the same time, to piggyback what you're saying, Jeremy, this movie doesn't take itself seriously at all. There's, like, literally an interplanetary gateway that's called the Devil's Anus. I I just th- this movie blew me away in, in so many different aspects just f- from you know the deconstructive elements of the character to the sort of non story arc it doesn't even really matter whether or not the the bad gal in this case wins uh, Odin is revealed to be a fraud I mean at one point Thor says to Loki something to the effect of uh, you'll always be the god of mischief but you could be more right and that's just to me I've said this before, but metatextual movies are the best kind of movies in my mind because really it, it, that's the, the – this MCU, the slice of the MCU commenting on the rest of the MCU. As much as mm. you know, people like to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy being fun and whimsical, I just – I really think that this is what those movies 
were trying to be both volumes. I mean, yeah. everything down from the, the, the quirky musical choices to, I mean, Taika Waititi is a character in this movie. He's like a talking rock alien and he yeah, has yeah. these hilarious, like literal, uh, stone faced, no pun intended <laughs> lines. And he's just playing off of all of these great little gags. And I just love this face turn that MCU is at least hinting at. I'm not hopeful for the sort of the larger Avengers dominated arc to kind of continue in this direction, but it's the, the clouds parted for me. Um, the, the sun shone through and for a little over two hours, I was like, this is good comic book. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty unique. I mean, I think that brings up something else about what's happening with Disney and some of these big blockbusters where in the star Wars side of things, they've had a lot of trouble with, in a lot of cases, bringing in young sort of innovative directors or young directors that might try something else. Um, We're going to find out with Han Solo here pretty soon what might have been happening. (laughs) Yeah. And, but I think in certain cases, you know, when we had Edgar Wright, who was supposed to make Ant-Man and he dropped out eventually um, over creative differences, but it does seem, I, I have not seen Thor yet. I expect that I will enjoy it a lot. Uh, and plan on um, seeing it soon. But, you know, Taiki Waititi was able to pull it off and do something with his own voice. I mean, I think we'll still kind of find out as things move forward what all of this looks like with hiring these different directors um, and different voices to be able to do it. I mean, did you guys think... I've heard that Thor is so drastically different from the other films that it it almost seems like a different character. Um, yeah. Does that that doesn't feel too awkward fitting into the larger world? It feels like a good character to be honest. <laughs> a better character. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, yeah. Attempting to be concise, um, <clears throat> like when I say the thing about like Silver Age to Golden Age, I mean mm-hmm. I really think that like the arc of Thor in the whatever five movies that he's in, mm-hmm. like he he's his most interesting and most. Like having had the most contact with Earth slash us in this mm-hmm. film, yeah. So it kind of makes sense that he's the way that he is. Mm-hmm. But all of the blah 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 and the story aside, it's just the most in- like Thor is so one dimensional mm-hmm. that he's an archetype. Mm-hmm. And when he's an archetype, you like the, the Emperor. Like yeah. you have to see him for three seconds, and you know like, everything yeah, about yeah. him. Mm-hmm. Like all like Thor can just wear the armor. And we essentially get around, like yeah. thirty hours worth of story that we don't need to watch, right? Because right. he's he's such a particular kind of he's such an iconic character. Mm-hmm. He's an he's an archetype, you know. Right. I think that's why he is. So like, sure, that's a starting point, and we see it for a tiny second, and then we just play with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is the only film that actually goes and plays with what this character can do with all these interesting mm-hmm. possibilities. You know, fun, interesting, has power, loses power, discovers things, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, like I, I, I mean, I always. Like, I was not as into comic books as other people when I was a teenager. I got mm-hmm. into, like, graphic novels later when I was mm-hmm. a young adult. But I always loved the, like, you know, the subversive nature of it. It's like someone telling a crazy story that you're not going to tell in any other medium. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, I mean, cool, like, Neil, Neil Gaiman is super cool now and everyone loves him. <laughs> but, like, he was not going to tell Sandman in any other format. Right. And now, you know, I think it's different because there's so many more ways and so much – it's easier to make television, film, media, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, But yeah, I I would sort of echo David's sentiment that like this is what a comic book should feel like. Mm. You know, and this is like when when reading 
you know, like a run of a comic book when I was a teenager or a young adult, like some of them, especially if they switch authors mid run, like it's crazy. Yeah. You know, and it's a mishmash or artists. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and that's part of what the fun is. It's like, you know, I'm just tuning in this week to see what somebody thinks Thor is doing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that everyone thinks they have to be Tolkien, um, Mm. and, and build a, a comprehensive and complete world right that has has an animating narrative arc and is Mm. complete and well fleshed out and whatnot and and i i mean i grew up reading that stuff and i love it Mm -hmm. but like that's that's a very particular way of telling a story Mm -hmm. um and it's not at all required yeah um and that level of detail it you know especially if you're telling a film where you have images to convey a whole lot of meaning you don't need all of that Mm -hmm. um and i think that uh it's part of one of the traps that i think Disney, who who manages two universes now, right. in addition to our At least, own, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, doesn't quite, you know, is I think breaking, is having to invent that, and they're having to come up with a way of responsibly handling an entire universe, right. which is probably, I mean, I, I really Keep think going, there's yeah. probably a dossier in which, you know, as I speculated yeah. in the last, that like Disney's like, we, we need to own all the, 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 the essential <laughs> memes the and icons of our world. And so they chose to do it. Um, but managing it is hard. And, and yeah. I, I don't yeah. think even like, if you look at Marvel with like Spider-Man, there's like Spider-Man and the amazing Spider-Man, you know, there's, then mm-hmm. there's often very different uh, mini runs and different mm-hmm. places where things branch off, and then there's like the whole like series of what if comic books, which I think are really interesting, and then all the sort of um, golden age stuff where they're time traveling and <laughs> having alternative universes and all that stuff. Like even they, ultimately, what I think led to six. I mean, I'm not an expert in comic books by any means, but what 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 I liked about a comic book reader and a graphic novel reader is somebody had a really cool story to tell. They happened to use some, you know. Uh, icons or people that we knew and they told that story um and it wasn't a plan about what's going to happen where and there's not like a board deciding well do we think we should kill superman in this film or the next film in which film do we think we're going to have the most economic impacts to killing superman um because i think at some sense if you try to manage that universe like a god you just kill it Mm. and what keeps it alive is films like thor ragnarok give your god a sense of humor well, yeah, and just and, and let some uh, very accomplished, quirky um, artist tell a really cool story, mm. um, and don't get in their way, and don't like manage. And I, I don't, and I don't know how much oversight was involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I get the sense. I mean, if I were Disney executives, that halfway through that thing, they're like, I kind of don't like this, but it's got something going for it, so right. we're gonna we're gonna run it on through. It yeah. It's different than we expected it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I, uh, I mean, I grew up with sort of like a love of Walt Disney, the person and the, the, the way in which he integrated art and, you know, his futurism and, what, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and over my life, of course, I think they turned into like a, a very evil corporation <laughs> in some sense. Um, sorry. Uh, but I, I do always – I've always appreciated the way in which um, they've allowed space for artists to do their work, whether mm-hmm. it's early animation um, uh, or like, you know, the, I just I, I've read a couple interviews with the people who like did the computer animation on um, the Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time it happens in film. And they were like so yeah. excited that it was happening. And, you know, and I, I, I like it when Disney is on the vanguard of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And and it makes it warms my heart a little bit. It's like, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, they're still doing that. Yeah. You know, they're still making space mm-hmm. for that. Um uh, yeah, that but I, I just think it's 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 really difficult to manage um, those universes, and I'm mm-hmm. pretty, and I'm, I'm sure that like much more you know, like that academics will be uh, writing about that for a long time because mm-hmm. um, I I don't think it's 
um, going to go away. And I think that like the ownership of these universes, for lack of a better term, is going to be a lot of what um, media is about mm. in the near future. That, that maybe leads us into, I think we all maybe have The Last Jedi, Star Wars on our list. Mm-hmm. And I know watching it in the theater, the experience, well, I think making these kind of lists a lot of times, we haven't had great Star Wars movies for many years now, but I would sort of hesitate and be like, well, I'm not going to put like a Star Wars movies at the top of my list. Like, you know, the new ones that come out, because that's not very like, you know, um, academic or it's not like, I'm not like a real film person if I'm throwing those out there. But watching the film, I was like, this is one of the most enjoyable cinematic experiences I've had this year and I you know have to put that on my list um, yeah because I think a lot of critics I saw it on a few people's list but not um not generally and we we spent a good extended episode talking about it but More uh, to come. did were you pretty high on The Last Jedi David or did oh you like... man the highest one can be <laughs> oh wow I I you know I I, I share at least some of your reservation, Eli, in the sense that, like, you know, how how can you put a multi-billion-dollar franchise sequel as like your number one? I was really mm-hmm. close to putting it there, though, just because uh, I I love so much about this movie. Yeah. Um. I I appreciated how it comments on on fandom and all all mm-hmm. it does to sort of uh, reshuffle the deck, so to speak. I, yeah. I will say that you know the sort of polarizing fan reaction to this movie aside, I, I would like to think that some of that is at least in the minority and sort of the toxic mm. fandom viewpoints about right. persons of color and all that are, are sort of shoved to the side. And hopefully we won't be talking about that in a, a great deal of uh, this long, episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what I really, really uh, think is sort of unassailable about this movie, and it's really hard to argue against, is that, uh, especially with the the prequels and revitalizing what Star Wars did for people in the late 90s and early 2000s, I feel like George Lucas sort of unintentionally made fandom kind of complacent. We're used Mm to uh, Jedi only having blue or green lightsabers and the Force doing X, Y, and Z things, and if you're Mm -hmm. a Sith, everyone shoots lightning out of their fingers, and everyone dresses (laughs) like Obi-Wan. And what the last Jedi does that even the Force Awakens and Rogue One really didn't do is it it's it breaks out of that complacent mold. It really mm-hmm. sort of expands the 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 universe and, and the story that we're we're working in in ways that I really don't think have been done since the original trilogy. And you know whether or not we want to have a debate about if we agree with those changes, if we think horse racing in space is stupid or cool, you know, right. I, it's sort of besides the point for me because I just, I, I walked out of this movie and I was like, I've never seen any of this stuff in a star Wars movie before. And it just, it left me, uh, invigorated and excited to see, you know, how JJ Abrams probably goes back and toes the line in two years. But mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I, I really felt like it was stretching and growing and, the just the the again the the meta aspects and and everything that this movie does as far as pushing the envelope just really kind of blew me away i think ryan johnson is uh, by and large a genius i'm a fan of all of his movies mm-hmm. and i just thought he sort of stuck the landing he i thought he nailed it yeah i think so too i mean uh it, it was a unique year too uh one of my favorite films is blade runner so 
I think it was these kind of younger directors seeing this year taking properties that um, were very well known, had very strong fandoms behind them, and kind of seeing what new things they would do with them. You know, I had been uh, waiting for quite a while, I feel like, to see what Ryan Johnson was going to do with this because I'm a big fan of his work as well. Uh, and, and yeah, I don't think he disappointed at all, although I was a little disappointed with Blade Runner 2049, but I think the expectations there were like unrealistic probably on my part. Um, So, I mean, we did an episode on that also, so I won't dig into it too much, but I, I mean, yeah, I think my expectations were too high for Blade Runner, but it was also a great theater experience. Like, Oh yeah. The sound, the music, although not as good as the original, was still really strong and and sort of actually moving, like felt it rumble in my chest. And the visuals were still beautiful and lush and dark, but in in their own ways for the most part, like didn't just copy. So I have to give that a lot of credit, even though I don't Jeremy and I talked about it, I don't think there is much there under the surface for us personally as the original film although i think there are things there to talk about and and we don't really see sci-fi at that level i think hardly ever um even if jeremy you know we were kind of disappointed yeah so without without asking you guys to recap the episode i'm just curious because that's what's one that i haven't listened to you guys talk about yet i'll admit sure um did did you what did you get out of it thematically because the one thing i did i I agree with you like it's i don't think it's as sort of a a rich uh piece of text as the original film is i mean Mm -hmm. visually aesthetically it is it is i I think definitely deserving of that imax experience but what i did appreciate was how it used this idea of memory not just you know uh the character's familiarity with Deckard but also Deckard's with with Rachel and you know you have that vision of her at the end um and then even our own recognition of some of these landmarks that were once familiar to us did you guys get that at all out of the movie did you have any sort of thematic resonance that you picked up on oh well i Go mean ahead. so uh i i'll try to make it so I- Eli can do a better job of this, I think. But I mean, so uh, off the bat, like um, I don't really uh, like our Blade Runner is not the m- most interesting character in the story, really. I think the most interesting character in the story is um, his digital assistant, whose name I can't yeah. remember. And so, like for me, like I'm I am all interested in their relationship and what she does and what she feels and how this um, film relates to like Ghost in the Shell. The stuff about uh, so uh, when I watched one of the one of the the movies that got shown beforehand, uh, like the little shorts made beforehand. There's mm. there's this um, scene when the the guy like whatever the Christian Bale character who's making the new uh, replicants comes in and like orders it to you know to choose between damaging him and damaging mm. himself, and he chooses mm-hmm. to damage himself. Um, and so this is like playing on like the uh, uh, Isaac Asimov's rules of robotics. You know, the mm-hmm. idea that um, they're better than us and that they, they would have this idea they would never hurt people. And that is an, an interesting and, and, and really key concept when you talk about any sort of artificial life as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I was like, oh, cool. So like we're getting back to like them having sort of like a, a really clear focus on what it means to be alive, what it means to be life mm-hmm. through the replicants in the story. And and that stuff happens, but the replicant not with the replicant story because mm-hmm. the replicant story is I think tremendously messy and complicated and without 
a lot of focus and it made me feel strange and I and like the the guy who cre- who creates them is very dark and almost nonsensical in his darkness um but i did you know but i did love the scenes between our protagonist and his assistant you know and also i mean this like his uh, all the stuff in the home and his relationship to her and when he encounters her again as the billboard later all that stuff is the stuff that i care about um uh the deckard story and the and the rachel story i i i could have i guess provocatively but honestly just done without um, it's cool, but I, if I don't know what it's trying to tell me, oh, uh, or I, I don't know what it's asking me to think about, because I also don't know like what's really at stake. Like, you know, is is this person trying to make replicants that are can become pregnant and he can't? I, like, mm-hmm. it's I don't. Yeah. You know, like Rachel seems to be unique because she did that. I don't know why or how. Um, the the only interesting thing about their well. Yeah, I guess the most interesting thing about Deckard and Rachel's relationship is the the idea that it might have been engineered by uh, Mr. Terrell in the first film. Because one of the things in the first film that I, I always found really, really interesting is like Deckard goes and meets with his guy. He goes – he's supposed to go to the Terrell Corporation to do something. Mm. He apparently – he does not appear to do that thing. But he does the void comp on Rachel and comes back. And like there's so much time missing in there. Mm. And the way in which he's called into action mm-hmm. by his boss at the beginning made me – made it plausibly believable that his entire nature as a character in the series was a setup. Mm. Um, and that he is a replicant or even a person that's being manipulated to do this sort of thing. And that was interesting because that's implied in the way he talks to um, Deckard when he's in his like water – temple layer thing mm-hmm. um but yeah i guess in sure i don't know if i would add more but it, it's like our relationship to uh, the relationship between these two digital beings like you know mm-hmm. but the replicant um, um and his digital assistant that i think is where the uh, movie breaks the most ground and is the most interesting yeah i mean i i would agree as far as like uh, i think her name is joy yeah um his sort of ai uh, love interest in in a lot of ways, or his companion that Ryan Gosling's K, you know, uses, and I think that that related to me a lot more in this film, to our present experience of having these digital assistants and having them know us in many ways, and, and like Jeremy was saying, like this, having some two things that are artificial, sort of relating to each other and um finding connection makes us consider like what is our human connections even about like what is it at a core level um but which i would say are the same kind of questions that i get out of the original film yeah and i and i always do appreciate the the commentary on memory in the original that it was implying that it is sort of our memories and the experience that they bring up that makes us sort of human and that can be possibly artificial in some ways and and i do like sort of i'm glad to hear you like sort of uh meta narrative films because i have been thinking more about in 2049 that we have harrison ford coming back and he's sort of in the film recalling back to his experiences with Rachel and that sort of gets brought back up to him when he sees her again. And he's sort of having to deal with how much of a reality that is. And I think it's left open how much he cares about that. We also get, 
without trying to spoil it, uh, the woman who creates memories. And so I think that all does kind of play into, but I think in, in a meta way, we're also understanding that Harrison Ford is coming back to this very iconic role. And there's a lot of history behind that role for him and not loving it. And, and I think he does a really great job in this and gives one of his best performance in his later yeah. career it is quite emotional. So I think there is this level of us sort of remembering who he was when he was young and sort of wrestling with these different ideas and then him sort of seeing him reflect on it as an older man, um, I think is really unique as well. So I don't know if that's quite what you're getting at, but uh, any other sort of thoughts on it? I could probably talk about Blade Runner for quite a while, but yeah. I think you guys covered a lot, actually. Uh, and I, I didn't. I, I sort of regret asking that question because I didn't want you guys to have to recap <laughs> some of the I... other stuff you already talked about. I was I was just literally, literally curious because I know that the people I've talked to, a lot of them have said that you know, again, as a, a visual experience, they got a lot out of it. But yeah. for for you know, lack not for lack of trying, they really didn't get anything out of either the Blade Runner story or like you guys were saying, even, you know, some of the, the, the gendered aspects or the AI aspects of the narrative. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it was a bad film by any means, I guess, because of how much I felt like, I think I've mentioned this before. Like every time I watch the original, I feel like I pull something new mm-hmm. out of it or some, see some new aspect of it. And I don't think this film is going to have that sort of longevity of watching it. I, I would like to see it again. I think I'll get, more things out of it watching again but not sort of the re the continuous rewatching that i well like with the original i would agree i mean the thing i'll when we interviewed a, a friend of mine named steve noel he's a does a lot of um theater production and is a big film buff he used mm-hmm. to was involved in uh, like distribution of uh, video in the early days um and he he described the first blade runner as like lightning in a bottle and that like mm-hmm. it, it there's so many things in it that work really really well in terms of what's finished mm-hmm. but you know, not all of it was intentional. Like yeah. it didn't intend to end that way. And one of the ways I think about the film is, is like my father who liked a lot of like Westerns and sort of gritty modern sci-fi, you know, like, uh, um, road warrior and escape from New York and this kinds of things, um, which are not nearly as sophisticated films as Blade Runner. I mean, I think the genre that it, that it was made for when it came out had nothing even close to it with this level of like complexity, noirishness, uh, you know, um, intellectualism, the high concepts that are involved in it. And it's just sort of this like, you know, uh, you know, like, I mean, people often describe um, Bruce Springsteen as this like New Jersey Dylan. Um, I love Bruce Springsteen, you know, in the way that like there's this individual that, that is doing genre work, but it sort of like totally takes it to a new level mm. and surprisingly so and almost uniquely so mm. and that's how I sort of see the original film because when I see it I mean I see it it's like oh it's like it's like these 80s films yeah. um, but it, it's got so much more going on and so it's really difficult I think it just uh, it, it was really difficult it is to, to recreate that again mm-hmm. you know because it's, it, it, it has become its own genre yeah um, and so how do you how do you do that? Like, how, how do you take this sort of surprising kind of schlocky genre and and, and surprise your audiences by adding this level of complexity? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, watching twenty forty nine, I mean, in the first five minutes, you know, when like this, when in case starts getting his head smashed through the wall, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. definitely not human. Yeah. And I thought it was a cool way to reveal that, but that cleverness does not carry you through the rest of the film. Mm. 
those little things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can continue on here. I know for you and I, David, we have Mother on our list, which I just had a chance to catch up with recently. And I was really impressed by, I would say, with Darren Aronofsky in his more recent last few films, I've kind of been like uneven on um, (laughs) somewhat. And so I was all on board with this one. You know, I... I had heard a lot about how sort of like crazy it gets. And so I was sort of expecting some of that, I think. So it didn't surprise me that much really with it. But I I really went along for the ride of the film that it just sort of took me on. And it almost reminded me of like this Godarian um, allegorical film where it's, you know, sort of political or dealing with these sort of classic issues in a modern way happening in society and and the way people act uh i mean i think you can't really it gets so absurd in many ways that you can't avoid <laughs> reading it as an allegory yeah. you know in many ways no you're you're right you're absolutely right and i i think that it's it almost played to me like a really experiential version of uh, rosemary's baby like mm. we're just gonna hyper sensationalize every aspect of what jennifer lawrence's character is going <laughs> Right. In this movie. Right. Um, I, I'm I, Aronofsky's kind of a mixed bag for me. I tend mm-hmm. to like his movies that are less conceptual. So I was surprised mm-hmm. that I enjoyed this as much as I did. Hmm. Uh, you know, again, I, I, I think that you're right. It's hard to not read this as something that at a minimum is an allegory for something. And I know that he's gone on record in interviews and, and said, you know, you can read it as, climate change or global warming or a metaphor mm-hmm. for religion. Yeah. Um, and I think all of those parallels are really interesting mm-hmm. and the heightened poetic language he uses to, to progress the story. No one really has any official names and everyone's right. sort of these uh, uh, almost archetypal elements. They're not mm-hmm. really characters. They're, they're sort of, um, these these elemental figures that you can draw from the Bible and and sort of familiar texts like that. Yeah, and a lot of that really resonates. But I think what is more interesting to me is viewing it through the the artistic lens because mm-hmm. you know Jennifer Lawrence is is the 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 sort of titular mother in this movie, but Javier Bardem plays this. He's like a poet, right? If I'm remembering correctly, is he yeah, supposed to be like poet. a poet yep. or an mm-hmm. author? Yep. And what I found really interesting reflecting on is like, okay, we have an artist that's making a story about an artist in, in a sense. Uh, what is, what is Aronofsky trying to say about himself? And I haven't really been able to come up with a, a compelling answer that's on par with, you know, uh, a house being set on fire as a metaphor for climate change. But I found it really interesting that like, Javier Bardem's character is dealing with this incessantly crazy fan base throughout <laughs> that's like building up. I mean, does Aronofsky even have like <laughs> really that big crazy, of a fan base? <laughs> you know, like I just, I found that very, very intriguing to me. And, um, I don't know. I, I, were you able to get anything out of that? Did you, did that strike you in any way? I mean, since our show is called extra textual, kind of reading uh, between the lines of what I've sort of heard and, and read about. It, apparently it's him sort of dealing with some of his issues with his former relationship with Rachel Weiss. And, oh. and I did 
I did have the same thought as you. I was like, I could see in his, I think maybe some of it was self commentary on being like him. So wrapped up in his, what he sees as artwork, you know, in his films and dealing with these ideas that he sort of lose track of the relation, you know, the important relationships in his life in a realistic way. And, but yeah, I had the same thought of like, is he really that, you know, famous that he (laughs) has like lots of people clamoring to meet him and things like that. Um, Maybe, I don't know. Or even that he's like that rich and famous of a director. I wouldn't, I don't, I I feel like he has trouble making his films a lot of times even. Um, And the other unique element I've heard about is that he started a relationship with Jennifer Lawrence during this film, which I think kind of adds another element (laughs) to things and he put a, put her through a lot, I think, probably on this film. So I think that's sort of a, a fascinating um, thing to think about as well. But yeah, I, I read one... After I watched the movie, I picked up on, like you said, a lot of the sort of biblical correlations, or um, I think he's mentioned in interviews like how he saw humans' relationship to the earth and through history and stuff, and he, he read that through like the biblical stories. And then I picked up on a lot of the, the, the literal like motherhood part of it. And, uh, well, I should say being a wife and mother. And it did, I think really helped me understand my wife better, honestly, um, and some of like what she she deals with and, and thinks about. And, uh, I've heard other people talk about how the film is only, you only see things from the perspective of, um, either over the shoulder of Jennifer Lawrence, straight on, so you see her or her point of view POV shots. Right. Like she is like so. If she walks in the other room and people are talking, you only get um, see the other characters from her perspective, um, sort of overhearing their conversations or not quite um, able to hear it, which I think adds a lot of tension and drama um, and is a really unique perspective, but. So that, that's kind of a long way around. I, yeah, I I read one critic review afterwards, and all they talked about was like the aspect of like fame, and like a um, artist and their muse sort of, and they were like, this is the this is what the movie's about. This is central theme, and I was like, well, that seemed like pretty minor to me actually, because that doesn't really tie in Jennifer Lawrence's character a lot. Um, that's mostly about Javier Bardem. But I do, I think overall I appreciate how people can have so many various experiences and um, interpretations of this film. And I think that's to its credit that it, it can pull that off, that so many yeah, people can yeah. get different things from it. There's, uh, there's always more room in this world for, for media that doesn't give easy answers, I like mm-hmm. to say. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the more I think through it, I'm not actually sure that I am eager to watch it again right away. <laughs> I don't think I am either. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like uh, Aronofsky's um, What Requiem for a Dream. I always said like, this is an amazing film um, and I never want to watch it again <laughs> after I saw it the first time. Um, kind of one of those movies. But I, I am sort of pulling out more of it as I sort of think about it. Um, and I, I think it is a film simply to be experienced in many ways. I don't know if you guys have seen Blindness that came out a few years back. No. Um, I think like Julianne Moore is in it. And it, it was not like a, a very large film. But I was excited because of the director. 
and it was in the same way very intense and allegorical um, in what these people went through and, and had a lot of sort of meaning behind it, um, but didn't make a lot of sense as a straight story. And Mother is definitely more entertaining than that film was. That felt mm. just sort of felt very harsh um, and hard to watch. So I think, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought it would. Um, I think he was employing a lot of unique techniques um, and playing with genre. And uh, yeah, overall, um, one of the better experiences of the year. Uh, did you did you pull anything else out of it as far as what you saw as themes? Or is that did you mainly kind of get the biblical sort of environmental side of it? I would say that's probably the gist of it. I, mm-hmm. I find myself coming back to it and thinking about it more and more just because it is uh, not just literally, but I feel like stylistically kind of a violent movie to watch. I mean, Eli, you mentioned that perspective is so important to just Jennifer Lawrence and her relationship to the camera and how mm-hmm. Aronofsky is showing you everything from her point of view. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much, I assume they did like, steady cam for like 90 percent of this mm-hmm. movie or something yeah, to that so. effect yeah it's just it's such it's such a a violent way of of making a movie and mm-hmm. it, it sort of only bubbles at the surface at the beginning but you know again it, it's in keeping with this whole allegory everything is sort of building to this elemental climax so yeah i, I think there's plenty there to to read into i feel like if I don't watch it again to echo your sentiment, I'll at least be thinking about it. <laughs> right. The other thing that sort of struck me was, and I realized this while I was watching the movie, there's these sort of uh, interludes where um, they're they're implying that she has this sort of metaphysical connection to the house in some way or her mm-hmm. surroundings in a way that mm-hmm. uh, touches on where the, the movie eventually ends up. And the CGI in those... Uh, sequences, however brief, just really took me out of the movie in general. And Mm. I had a moment of, I had this sort of epiphany where I realized that like, by and large, I feel like the CGI in a lot of Aronofsky movies are kind, is kind of crappy. Like I was, I was, it was, it's a really weird point to sort of draw out of that. But even in like Black Swan where Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to remember Natalie Portman, hallucinates that she's like turning into a swan or whatever and she oh, like okay. sprouts those legs right that happens mm-hmm. in that movie right yeah i think um, so not just in that, a dream or something yeah <laughs> I, I, just for whatever reason cgi in aronofsky movies just does nothing for me mm-hmm. i mean noah i also did not really care for and a lot of sure. the special effects in there i was not a big fan of but yeah i mean that was really all i i, I think that there's a lot of mileage to get out of it though mm-hmm. yeah i mean um yeah i think you really f- he he does a great job of like really digging into the emotion of Jennifer Lawrence's character and using the technique um, to really feel uh, kind of what's happening. And oddly enough, you know, for him, like you said, for him making Noah, which was a huge letdown or, or not really that interesting. Um, this was like one of the most religious experiences I've had <laughs> in a film and you do really feel even like if we view it as this story of like creation and like God's relationship to humanity or his people or something like you really start to feel like the way that, you know, humanity just sort of runs over the earth and takes over without much thought. And it, it is a really visceral way of sort of understanding that factor. 
So yeah, I I, un- I hear that audiences didn't enjoy this film very well, but it, it's a very different role for say Jennifer Lawrence, and I actually think she does a pretty good job. Yeah, um, is one of her better roles, uh, but I think a general audience wouldn't know what they're getting themselves into by going to see it, um, which is okay. I, I don't have any problem with that. Let's continue on from there, and we probably just mention a few more things because I know we're starting to run a little bit long. Yeah. I think The Big Sick would be a great one to talk a little bit more about. Um, I think we've all seen that. And um, I know Jeremy and I were talking about that sort of um, off the show lately, but it's... It was a surprise. I don't think when I was first thinking about my list, I didn't necessarily think to put it on my list at first. And then I heard other people talk about it, and uh, and I, and I started to kind of recall how many great moments there were in that. Yep. And I think the interactions between the characters were so natural and and handled well for that type of genre, sort of. Um, mm-hmm that that i couldn't help but say yeah you know what this was really um an enjoyable experience um this year uh but what was your guys's kind of take on it um i myself loved it eli (laughs) thanks jeremy uh david uh i guess uh let's see if i had to pick a a few things i mean aziz ansari sort of starts when he has his when he has his um like parents on his show Mm -hmm. i mean like i i really like the inclusion of people's parents in the show um you know and, and, and in many ways this 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 movie is a lot about like you know two two generations you mm-hmm. know so it, it's a in some sense it's a very classic story yeah um but i also love the um i mean watching it not knowing it sort of based on not knowing it was based on a, a real story yeah. it has these these sort of like odd hallmarks of being based on a true story like a strange illness right um you know like a very oddly timed illness mm-hmm. um and I mean, I just uh, really enjoyed the characters. I mean, like mm-hmm. pretty much everyone in the story feel felt really authentic. Yeah, um, having really um, compelling uh, things to say, mm-hmm. um, and they said them in a really compelling way. The acting I thought was really good. Yeah. You know, the performances everyone puts in. Um, you know, there's there's no oper- I mean, there's one sort of like dramatic scene when he talks to his father. And his parents is like, "This is the thing I'm doing. It's a dramatic monologue right, right. here." Um, and the two things I like about it: one, we, that's not what the movie's all about. You know, it's mm. it's a we, it's not a dramatic monologue kind of film. Yeah. And two, in his dramatic monologue is just kind of sloppy, mm-hmm. um, and it feels like a real person having a real experience with their real parents in the real real world. Yeah. Which I liked. Um, I'm mean, also. I mean, like, I, as I've talked about on the show before. I'm a sucker for like any like South Asian stuff. I mean, like I studied a lot of um, stuff in India and Nepal when I was before, and I, and I love uh, you know Indian cinema to death. And uh, you know, like uh, in like tr- like um, Bollywood cinema, like a good half of the actors like they're Muslims and Hindus. Um, and and uh, you know, I I really like seeing that in American cinema. Um, and I also like that uh, I don't know and and. I, I I really liked the way that uh, as the audience we follow along with uh, the Muslim character and are in mm. the know with him, mm. um, yeah. and it's That's and unusual, it's, it's yeah. this white character who is is not is uh, is the outsider. She's mm. not the audience knows way more than she does, yeah. and we mm-hmm. sort of see her 
figure it out. Mm. Um, and so that it's really his story. Yeah. You know, it, it isn't, you know, and it's not the white girl story. It's his story, mm-hmm. um, which I just found really uh, refreshing yeah. um, and pleasant because he's, um, you know, I've, you know, uh, he is plays a number of characters on Portlandia. Mm-hmm. They're all sort of this deadpan guy. And I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, and, you know, and he, thing, he delivers yeah. those deadpan things in a way that, like, oh, I'm like, I bet you're really hilarious. Like, this may not be your best, you know, role in yeah. Portlandia, but you, you seem like you have a really funny thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I also love the little, uh, like, the we get to see a little bit behind the scenes of what it's like to be a comedian. Yeah. Um, which, you know, in the age of what's going on with Louis C.K. and whatnot, it, it's fun to see. Or it's, like, mm-hmm. interesting to see a little bit back there. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, when I heard the premise of it, I was like, sign me up for that. Like, that sounds like a great, <laughs> you know, like, I, you know, great. Like, and she fall and, like, most of the movie Terrible is, like, illness it, is the, yeah, it's, like, this guy awkwardly interacting with her parents. Mm. Um, and I think her parents, uh, who, what are the um Holly Hunter. Yeah. And, and Ray Romano. Ray Romano. Yeah. Yeah. Ray Romano is so good. <laughs> it's I mean, a great role for him. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just like, I mean, there's something, he's able to do this, like, dad, like, his stance mm-hmm. um, towards, like, our protagonist mm-hmm. is just hilarious. Yeah. Like, when, like, like anytime they're in the same room, like, they don't <laughs> even need to talk, and I'm having an entertaining and yeah. humorous time. Especially when, like, I, mean, I just both sort of deadpan, which is yeah, yeah. you know, and it's all sort of with facial expression. I mean, I just mm-hmm. love when he's like sleeping on the floor and he's like talking to her about the affair. And he's like, I slept with a woman at a conference, <laughs> right, just and he's like, No, I don't need to know. You know? Yeah. Um, and I just felt like that they were able to play uh, like the differences between what her parents and her, you know, and mm-hmm. sort of protagonists want. They they wanted different things mm-hmm. for the daughter, yeah. um, but neither of them were completely right or completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt like a really honest portrayal of two sort of people with very different interests coming together um and i gotta say i like love the crap out of the fact that she wakes up and is like and doesn't give a a rat's ass about what happened yeah you know and she's like and she was was like oh like you're what you know whatever why are you here yeah you know and he's and he's like well a lot happened with parents and she's like yeah yeah you know and i was like that's you know that's great you yeah. know, and, and also like that that takes some chutzpah, and mm-hmm. it's also like unexpected and interesting, and has the hallmark of something that's really happened. Yeah. Um. And and still, I'm like, okay, so we have that essential ending, mm-hmm. and then I'm also happy that like she goes to see him in New York, right? You know, because I know they. Um. So we get, but I also feel like that I don't know in terms of like watching romance stories, mm-hmm. I, I felt like it was really fun to watch a story that ends essentially at the beginning of a relationship mm. um mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's like very hopeful and it feels very like 1988 but it's not all um, up, yeah no but i was like it was just it was fun mm-hmm. um and uh there was we'll say like an acute lack of sensationalization mm-hmm. and again mm-hmm. like our, our audience does i mean like w- we do learn about like our protagonist's family and the the sort of the culture of arranged marriage and whatnot mm-hmm. but like there's not like a an ex- we're not excessively explained about it. It's right. like we we know we know just enough it, for yeah. the story, um, and it becomes about like you know any other kind of difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also I just love his stand up about ISIS. I just have an, a deep appreciation for like you know like the way he, at the end when he's doing his time, and he he has yeah. this gradation about like you know working for ISIS, you know all this sort of stuff <laughs> in there. Um, 
And I also like, well, this is the last thing I'll mention. I also like the, I really like the bit when he's doing his, when he, when her parents go to see him do his mm-hmm. comedy bit and someone's like, fucking go back to ISIS. Mm-hmm. And she's like, why would you say that? Um, yeah. That interaction is just messy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it. And realistic. Yeah. 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 I agree. That's my bit about that. David? I think you guys hit a lot of what worked for me on this already, but you know, the the unconventional structure to this, a lot of that obviously is born out of the fact that you have a main character that's in a coma for a (laughs) third of the movie. But I just, I find it so fascinating and it, I think it really speaks to a lot of what Jeremy was saying about just sort of, bucking trends in general but also giving time for this character to uh learn if not more about this this woman that he still has feelings for her people that are really important to her in her life or at at least at one point were important to her this this whole idea that you know we're taking this expected social flowering of a relationship and sort of turning it inside out and almost doing it in reverse order where the partner is meeting the parents before the actual like other partner it's Mm -hmm. just it fascinated concept to me. And then as you guys said, when she wakes up, she's like, okay, well that doesn't change, you know, what's going on between us. And they have to sort of rebuild that and re-earn that trust again. Um, I just, I, this, this opportunity to understand the differences, not only between, uh, parents and their offspring, but also ourselves and our expectations that we impart on each other. And you guys have been talking about it already. You know, no one's really wrong and no one's really completely right either in this. Like it's very, mm-hmm. you use the word messy a lot, Jeremy. And I think that really speaks to uh, the motivations of these characters and the relationships with one another. Uh, one of my favorite moments from the movie is towards the end when Kumail's moving away and his parents are clearly still like not okay with all of his decisions <laughs> But they still insist on giving him some of his favorite food. Oh yeah. And there's this there's this tacit recognition by them that like, yes, we're still mad at you, but you're also our son and you're still family and this mm-hmm. is how we're gonna deal with this complicated situation right now by giving you some of your favorite food and then awkwardly sulking back into the car and not saying <laughs> Right. And I, I, I just I love that. I think I think the messiness and, and how this film was about what could have been otherwise if they, you know, had, had relegated the story to some uh simpler concepts a, a pretty mm-hmm. rote idea is 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 what elevates this above s- sort of the conventional romantic comedy mm-hmm. um the, the other moment that really stuck out to me was uh when Ray, Ray Romano's sort of crashing with Kumail's character uh-huh. and they're having this sort of would be heart to heart and it's building this moment where in most movies you would think that the father of this woman this guy is still in love with is imparting this wisdom on him but all he says is like love isn't easy that's why they call it love and Kumail's <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense to me at all and <laughs> Romano's like yeah I don't know I'm just I'm, I'm going with it right here so I, I love how the movie can can call out people for that and it again speaks to this idea that you guys have been talking about where you know no one's fully right and no one's fully wrong there isn't these like mm-hmm. wise characters that after years of a perfect marriage, they've sort of been able to impart wisdom on their, their offspring. There's none of that nonsense. It, it, it just felt very raw and real in a way that I, I found very refreshing. Yeah. There's the two things I want to add, I guess. Um, it, it, I didn't notice it until talking about it now, but I mean, there is this sort of interesting uh, reversal in that, like the way in which 
um, Kamel's character gets introduced back to his girlfriend is is similar to what like the setup for arranged marriages is. Yes. Where like you have like a you know like your parents vet this person and like we've approved yeah. of this person here you go right. yeah. and they're like <laughs> you should like them yeah yeah like I was totally mostly dead while that happened <laughs> right. so it doesn't matter. Um, and I, thinking about it now, I'm like I think it probably was intentional, but it, it's interesting the way because you know you're reversing gender with that, you're reversing mm-hmm. sort of the setup. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is. Um, I totally agree with you with the food and there's um, you know there's all sorts of like uh, cultural stuff about food in South Asia um, uh, but the, the one literary reference that I uh, always go back to is in, in Midnight's Children uh, sprawling book many things happen but at one <laughs> section of the book um, our main character's um, mother is like withholding food from the husband as punishment for him sort of like doing having these like uh, uh, dalliances with the women in his office. Um, but the mother and all the mothers in that sort of story are, are portrayed as like the masters of uh, the kitchen and the domestic and they, they get to dole out food and approval in equal measure mm-hmm. um, and get to say what it's okay that someone does and what it's okay that someone doesn't do and and it's usually like done through food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, you know, I mean, I, I, it, it's a huge cultural thing but it's also, there's lots of other sort of um, very easily accessible, like literary touchstones for that sort of thing. So I mean, it has its like it's it's like very obvious, clear, straightforward to anyone who's watching the film. But there's also this sort of like deeper, um, I think, literary and, and cultural bit that's like that is that is how she truly expresses her feeling <laughs> to her son yeah. is, is through the cooking right, of this dish, right. and we are, that is what we are supposed to get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I had this strange experience, um, which tells you about where I'm at in life, where, like, the beginning, I had memories of, like, courting my wife, or, you know, like, (laughs) um, our first interactions and things like that, and then uh, how our relationship progressed. Um, She did not um, go into a coma, uh, by the way. But then, you know, there's a surprising sequence you guys are talking about where we meet her parents uh, away from her yeah. and then which I didn't expect to happen I knew it was about her having the sickness and him dealing with that and stuff but I didn't expect this whole middle part where we're just spending time with her parents and so my like viewpoint switched at that point and now being a parent like I started to look at it from that point of view <laughs> like and be like view. yeah like this is like when my kids are older and I have to deal with like who is their potential you know partner and um and like you said about imparting wisdom like I'm not gonna feel like I'm gonna know what to tell this kid you know when I'm when I'm sort of at that point and I thought the and I, li- I also like the way you said the messy like those parents were very like messy and how they did things but it was a natural character growth i felt like especially the mother who yeah. was like really not on board with him and didn't care about him yeah. and but then, then they all get drunk and eat in his apartment and it's this yeah they yeah. share food right yeah. yeah um and then you know by the time they go to her sh- they go to the show like she's totally defending him and um <laughs> and i think that was actually a, a very natural progression yeah. of things yeah. and um so it, it was weird seeing both parts of those. I also have to say, like, Kamal Nanjani is, like, my kind of sense of humor. Yeah, like, yeah absolutely. Like, that sort of subtle, dry delivery. And I just so identified with, like, earlier in their relationship. And I don't remember exactly the time period, but he, like, makes some excuse. Or, like, I think just, like, a joke about, like, I can't see you again for this many hours or whatever. After yeah. After we've... And I feel like that's something, like, he said as a joke, but then, like, she sort of didn't get it. 
Yeah. And so he kind of is like, I guess I'll just go with that. Yeah. I don't know. And then it becomes like a thing. And that's totally like my wife still says she doesn't know when I'm joking or not. Oh, I, um, yeah. Because it's, it's yeah. dry. So like we still have that problem. But she was like, that thing you said a week ago, I thought you were like serious. And I'm like, no, yeah, that was I, a I, joke. I, yeah. As we go um, meta, meta, extra, extra textual here. <laughs> uh, Eli showed up at my house um, uh, last Sunday for a brunch that we had arranged. <laughs> and I met him at the door in an apron and was like, what are you guys doing here? Like implying that they uh, had come at, at the, the wrong time or, or day. Yeah. Which is something I do all the time. Please don't come to my door unless you <laughs> unless you want to be pranked or don't call me because I will. I just can't resist it. Um, and it just, uh, Jess, Eli's wife, was like very visible. She like blushed and was like embarrassed thinking that they had showed up at the wrong time. And I was like, no, no, I'm joking. It's, it's a joke. Which is a problem. I guess it's, I'm saying I, I often have the same problem. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, so I take just, everything you say in this podcast with a grain of salt. That's what yes, you're exactly. Everything this, I ever. This say. is just one big joke, actually. No, Throughout the last uh, two hours. Yeah, I don't like any of these movies, by the way, guys. I don't know. Well, and the the so, uh, lots of time. Uh, the final thing I want to say about the Big Sick is this: um, the thing that I found probably most satisfying about it is that um, uh, the character growth is a small um, but very noticeable, hmm. um, and that we don't have characters making giant leaps from one perspective to another. We have very subtle changes in their opinions about one another or their opinions about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like Ray Romano has this, like, uh, he gets up the courage to ask some sort of question about, I don't know if it was ISIS or something else. Yeah. You know, 9 11, I think. Yeah, 9 yeah. 11. Um, and then I think uh, Kamal's response is something like, yeah, it was my brother's or something. You know, it's so, sort of a silly sort yeah, of yeah. answer. Um, but, you know, it's like that sort of, yeah, it's like uh, there's a level of emotional vulnerability that all the characters go into, and it's through that. Uh, vulnerability that growth happens mm-hmm. and I just like the way they try like you know you think oh it's, it's maybe it's about the relationship or some bigger thing but it's about like these these subtle changes that uh, the characters make across the story and it was it's just it find I found it really satisfying mm. you know like I, I didn't um, you know it, sure that it feels real and I think that's it's part of its appeal but it's also that um, it, it tells sort of like a humble story about four or five people's emotions slightly changing about mm each other yeah um which you know in in any good play or setup you know uh, seems to be uh what it's all about and Mm -hmm. there is a sense as i watched it that um and i know it wasn't done this way but it has that feel of like a one act play yeah you know of of four people in various situations Mm -hmm. you know having uh important discussions about things um and i think they i also like that they have uh, most of the changes happen through dialogue Mm -hmm. but there's not like exposition like we don't have any long-winded discussions of things things, it's mainly awkward jokes um (laughs) which is great awkward conversations yeah yeah so how about how about we do one more before we finish yeah i we can mention anything else but i did want to mention the film planetarium which you may have not heard of i had randomly seen the trailer this year stars natalie portman european film i think actually she speaks french um in the film for half the time and I, I had been planning to sort of rent it on iTunes because I couldn't find it, and then it popped up on Netflix mm-hmm. suddenly. So um, I was excited to be able to check it out. Hasn't got a great critical response, but it's a film that I think accomplishes a lot of what I've sort of tried to do in my filmmaking sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like with my feature film, I tried to sort of view it as like, what if you could just take 
Like you watch a trailer and it just flows so smoothly, like a good trailer, and you're like, those are the best moments from the film, and you put them all together. But I'm like, can you extend that out for a feature length? Not necessarily like I want it to be like a trailer that's an hour and a half. Let's just condense it down to like the essential moments, and they're all moving and uh, hopefully amazing or something insightful. And I think in some ways that's why I appreciate someone like Terrence Malick, who I feel like has like with his imagery and um, people compare it to like sort of a poetic style. Mm -hmm. And so it it feels like you're watching a whole film of sort of like poetry in motion. This film sort of did that for me. It's sort of about two sisters who perform like seances and sort of like can call up a dead person into the room sort of with uh, uh, for whoever they're kind of doing the seance for. And, And the movie always like never treats it as like, not true that it didn't doesn't happen um they don't even like address it very much uh there's certainly people that sort of doubt it but they treat it very seriously uh and they use it more as like a profession in the Mm -hmm. film so eventually the two sisters sort of get pulled in by this french uh producer and he wants to make a film um kind of using them as a characters kind of who they really are and his goal is also to capture an actual like seance on film and hopefully something magical happens, like he catches the spirit or something um, live. And I wouldn't say this is like the focus of the film, but it's kind of the ideas of what's happening. Anyways, I just found the film, it's dealing with sort of this magical idea of sort of this uh, pulling things up from the dead, kind of conjuring things. And for me, just the film itself was sort of magical in that way and dealt with a lot of different ideas. I think it was a combination of cinematography and the, diff- and the story, but the way that it all worked together. Um, reading different um, critics' responses, I think a lot of people felt like it would introduce ideas and then never like follow through on them. And I can see that, but I think it was trying to do that in a way that, that that's the way life is sometimes. Like Things sort of happen to you and they can have meaning, but they don't always you know, relate to the next thing that comes up. And it does sort of explore a time period in these people's lives, not necessarily just like one um, small story. So I also appreciated the metaphors to cinema of like magic and illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremy, I know you like <coughs> The Prestige. Um, this is a great film. Nolan's. And I think that film tried to pull off like, how do you convey illusion or magic on film without yeah. just being like, well, you could just do that through editing or a trick, you know? Um, I don't believe it because I'm not, like, live there. Yeah. And so I think this film, early on, it does has a couple of those sort of seance moments. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. say they're, like, scary. They're not really meant to be in that way, but they are, like, suspenseful and thrilling. Mm-hmm. And it did manage to at least sort of give me the impression that there was this other presence in the room in the way that um, they use film and editing and camera to to invoke that. So I like all these concepts of um, relating it to film, which I think is oftentimes sort of thought of in that way of sort of like conjuring up, you know, a person, whether it's like you're conveying, you're portraying some, a real person, like a biography or something, like you're bringing them back to life. 
at one point when the a film director in the film that's directing them says like we wish we had experienced things more intensely in our lives but in a lot of cases we haven't um so he says we regret that we didn't experience them more strongly and so we make movies about that and i think that really hit me as sort of profound about my own sort of writing or thinking about stories I want to tell is that I want to portray them and sort of enhance that intensity of something I've experienced myself and at least like convey that to an audience. And it's also sort of like therapy for me, I think in some ways, like in the process of telling stories, I'm thinking about myself in those. And then you're telling people like actors to portray things, maybe at least ideas that you have. And so it's sort of, very self-reflexive, which we've been talking a lot well, about today. I, yeah. I haven't seen the film, but I, I will just make a, a comment or two. Yeah. I mean, with my five-year-old son, four or five, four or five, four or five, <laughs> um, four or five, four five? Or five. yeah. Um, how old is he? Is he five? I don't know. I don't know. I think he's four. His <laughs> name's Sam, regardless. Um, I hope he doesn't uh, listen to the show. Yeah, uh, he does every week. Yeah, um, he. Uh, I mean, he and I actually. I, I find that, like he does a lot of like creative play on his own, mm-hmm. and we actually do a lot of like narrative play together. Like mm. we take a bath, and like we like the little. We have like little dinosaurs, and 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 Great surprisingly, like and yeah, like they often like act out the things that like just happened and i i, I often life, i often yeah. play a character who's like grumpy <laughs> with their kids and like you have to eat your stuff and you got to get to bed on time and, um but it gives us an opportunity to um uh explore and comment on like um those things in like a safe way mm-hmm. and we can you know and we can talk, talk about those characters that. without saying like dad i don't like that you did that or like mm-hmm. sam i don't like that you did that um and i think there is a a a, a deeply human um thing that goes on mm. in that way and i yeah. and i would say that there is I think it, there's a um, just the, the way I've experienced emotion and, and processing trauma and what in my own life. Mm-hmm. Um, like art seems to be uh, an essential part of that, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know, like I, I would, I you know, adventure to say that that's part of where a lot of it comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason why we do this thing, which we call art, and why why we tell these stories about fictional people and other people, like can't get enough of them. Yeah, you know, there's a way in which um, it allows us to to think about and talk about and process and postulate um, and, you know, criticize and fix things in our own lives, but in a, in a, in a safer space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes in, in like a more powerful space too. Cause like, uh, you know, I think they're just like uh, things that happen in our lives where like we recognize the terrible potential of a disaster avoided, for example, mm-hmm. but we can play that out um, in a story yeah, in a way that we wouldn't and are very glad we didn't in our real lives Mm -hmm. yeah so to sort of wrap up here i just wanted to mention just list them off things that i have not seen that i expect that i would have a lot to talk about at least the florida project is getting a lot of attention um from sean baker and i'm interested to see that sounds really fascinating the post from spielberg i'm always kind of on board at least to check out what spielberg is doing Mm -hmm. and this sounds interesting Personal Shopper, also hear great things about, uh, have not had a chance to see. And then Lady Bird is also quite popular in the in the film world, and I also expect to like that a lot. Uh, Greta Gerwig is probably like one of my favorite actresses and one of the funniest people I see in films. Sort of like Kamal Nanjani, I think her delivery is just like hilarious, but half the audience probably doesn't get it, I feel like. 
that she's being funny. So I think her voice will be interesting to hear. And then uh, we didn't... Jeremy and I recently saw The Shape of Water. We mentioned that. Um, we'll probably save that and talk about yeah, that okay. in another episode. I think we both appreciated it pretty well. Yeah. And then some honorable mentions for me. I'll probably get around to talking about a ghost story, which I would say is pretty pretty high. It would probably fit into my top ten list, but don't necessarily have time to talk about now, and I just caught up with that recently. Anything else for you guys that you want to mention? Well, we talked about um, I Am Not Your Negro, or mentioned it. Yeah, we didn't... Get around uh, to no, that, but yeah, we know we can probably talk, we can talk about some other mm-hmm. time, but um, yep. there uh, the one thing that I wanted to mention about um this um, film I yeah. Am Not Negro it's sort of like a, a mishmash documentary of uh, various um documents people talking about and clips from James Baldwin, so, yeah. famous writer. Uh, the the thing that I'm I'm off I was struck by in that film that I'm always struck by when I watch a good film about African Americans in the United States or something of that nature mm-hmm. is like how the narrative that we tell culturally is like things were very different back mm. in the 50s and 60s strange backward nation we were yeah. and we have progressed now and the issues we deal with now are so <laughs> different and and the story from James Baldwin and and and, and many others is like it's exactly the same mm-hmm. it's not like these modern things are so strange and complex they're exactly the same as they were mm-hmm. um 40 50 60 70, yeah. 80 think, years ago. That's something I had exact in my notes is like some of the last statements he makes. And he's like, you know, I think as a society, we need to address this question of, you know, um, he's like, white people need to address this of why we had to have slave in our, slavery in our country and how we treat black people. And he's like, we have to address that to go into the future. And it's like, we're still in the same place yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah and, and and there's just like um yeah I, and I he's a tremendously skilled writer and I hadn't heard him speak before I'd only mm-hmm. ever read his yeah, things yeah. and he's like a, a, an, an equally compelling mm-hmm. speaker very articulate um, yeah. and it, like a like razor sharp in terms of his like intelligence and response and certainly mm-hmm. in like the mm-hmm. uh, in being in, involved in impromptu debates which he is mentioned in this film yeah. um and it's just I mean it was just delightful to see him be himself mm-hmm. um and and i don't know if there was sort of i i i like this so much more than a biopic mm. is what i yeah, wanted yeah. to say yeah. um and there you know i don't think there's enough actual footage of him to put you know then there wasn't to put together like a whole film of him talking sure. um but when he does uh it's really important and profound mm-hmm. um and it just highlights like from you know like from the activist standpoint that, that there's a terrible danger in thinking about like our current problems as being unique mm. i don't mm. entirely know what it is yeah um but when i it's it's much harder in my heart to understand that the same things that like the, the white people in 1964 mm. are essentially the same as the white people now mm. and it's the same kind of challenge yeah um because that feels uh challenging in a, in a way that requires me to quantum leap to solve that problem. Mm. Thinking like, oh, we have unique things now. Right. It's It feels very safe in mm-hmm. that like, you know, the way I, like I am totally progressive <laughs> and white and very sensitive to these issues. So I, I, I am not in the same place as those whites who were complicit in the right, 1960s. In the 60s, yeah. um, it, it, it lets me get off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, the film is sort of masterfully done to just uh, make a statement to op- the opposite of that. Yeah. To say... For sure. Um, you know, 
this is not like all the things that were relevant then are relevant now and you, you they still need to be fixed mm-hmm. yeah still need to be addressed yeah anything else you guys want to throw out there as far as just listing off things uh honorable mentions things you missed Deed. well i think uh phantom thread for one mm-hmm. uh, that's that's a big one always um a couple of honorable mentions just so, so a few quick shout outs uh yeah. call me by your name i managed mm. to catch and I, I think that it would be a, a fascinating double feature to watch both Call Me By Your Name and um, uh, Brokeback Mountain to to hmm. do a throwback reference to, to Jeremy. I'm also a big yeah. Ang Lee fan, so I think that would yeah. be a fascinating comparison just hmm. because Call Me By Your Name is also such a, a, a really rich movie that I think treats its relationship between, in this case, Timothy Chalamet, who's this sort of uh, budding uh, intellectual son of a professor and his wife that are both staying in in Italy for the summer. Um, And he goes into a a sort of semi-romantic sort of exploratory relationship with Army Hammer, who is much older and is a, is a doctoral student, I believe that's studying with this man's father. And the, the, the degree to which this film treats this relationship is so mature. And at the same time, it, 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 it sparks with this sort of youthful energy that is really driven by uh, Chalamet's performance. And, and the fact that this, this young man is still trying to find his place in, in the world. And he's surrounded by all these great works of literature and music. And yet at the same time, there's this sort of stunning irony that um, he still has so much to learn about himself and, and those he interacts with and, and really just the idea of what love means to him. There's a scene before the, the epilogue of this movie where uh, Michael Stuhlbarg and uh, Timothy Chalamet sit down and they just talk about uh, what love means and, and, and what it means to, to both of them respectively. And then, uh, what love means between the two of them. And it's just, it's, it maybe is the most stunning, uh, sequence I've seen in a movie all of this, this past year in 2017. And it's really remarkable. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I just wanted to give a quick shout out to call me by your name. I also think that, um, Coco kind of flew under the radar, at least for me a little bit. I was a big fan of Moana, but more for its songwriting than I guess the narrative itself. I think that, you know, if you craft an earworm, it's easy to get an audience hooked on something like that. And I feel like, ironically, Coco, which is this this story about a, a young boy in Mexico who essentially goes off to the land of the dead to find mm-hmm. his great-great-grandfather, it, it, it's also steeped in music because his great-great-grandfather is this famous musician and because his great-great-grandfather sort of left his great-great-grandmother uh, to pursue this career in music, uh, music is sort of is looked down upon in his family now, despite this young boy wanting to become a musician. And while music is so prominent in this movie, you know, you're not getting some of the hits that, you know, like a Frozen or Moana would give you. And at the same time, it's this really uh, sort of refreshing take, I guess, if you could say that, mm-hmm. on... Uh, death that I real I really think that Disney and and Pixar haven't have sort of skirted around I, th- I think artfully in a lot of cases they're very good at you know sort of straddling that line between what is it okay for the kids to talk to <laughs> right. mommy and daddy about and 
and giving them an easy out, so to speak. But this really doesn't shy away from that material at all. Um, it uh, it also is very respectful to, uh, from what I understand, Mexican culture. It, it has a voice cast of, of people of color. And it, there's this sort of wonderful sort of Beetlejuice meets Toy Story mashup <laughs> at the heart of this where um, these characters are, are flitting in and out of the land of the dead. And there's this vibrancy to all these different creatures and spirit animals. And um, I, I think just in general, a lot of Pixar movies have this long-running tradition of revealing their sort of would-be he- heroes to kind of be charlatans. Um, Up, I think, is a, a good example of that as well. Yeah. There's Oftentimes you have characters that are looking up to other characters, and then we find out they're frauds. And <laughs> that happens in this movie, too, in really interesting ways. And the sort of the, the thematic elements about honoring your past and how important tradition can be, I think, coincide with that in a really beautiful way. And I, it's just one of those movies that I feel like hasn't gotten enough credit, weirdly, even though it's you know backed by Disney. And I, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Kogo. So. Yeah, those are both ones that I, uh, Coco and Call Me By Your Name, that I hope to see soon as well. I, I was trying to go with my um, son to see Coco, and we just didn't get a chance to do it. Maybe we'll still get to do that. And like you mentioned, Phantom Thread, we were talking about that before the show, and I've also been trying to um, see that with my wife. We don't get to see very much in the theater, but I know um, we'll probably be very high on my list uh, this year. I've been looking forward to that one for a long time, and Paul Thomas Anderson is just, like, master for me at this point um, in his filmmaking skills, so... I I did... I wanted to ask you one question, David. Did you see... um... The uh, three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Ebbing, Missouri film. I did. I actually just watched it this past week. <laughs> um, I, I have not seen it. I, I've read a, a number of reviews of it. Do you do you have a few thoughts to share? I mean, it got nominated for some stuff, and uh, yeah, the, the, the I, general like critical take is like, I loved it. Weird or wow, too weird. I I think. Again, to sort of be brief, because I don't want to, I don't want to talk at you guys about this too much. But <laughs> I, I found it really sort of tonally all over the place. I'm not a big fan of McDonough's movies in general. I, I think that he uh, relies on the sort of implied wonkiness of like a, a Sam Rockwell or a Woody Harrelson to just kind of be weird on screen. And you're yeah. getting some of that here as well. Um, but I, it, it's just, it's a very strange tone to. Uh, have in a movie that is about something that is at face value a very serious subject um you know francis mcdormand's daughter is raped and murdered and she the three billboards that the title references are her essentially calling out the the town's police department for not doing enough um and you know since we're we're living in a time where you know important messages like black lives matter are are still very much out in the open um it, the, this whole idea of having Sam Rockwell's openly racist character kind of making jokes and almost in inviting the audience not to sort of laugh with him but still at him still feels inconsistent to me it, it never really hmm. sat well because you know in the scene prior you're talking about someone being sexually assaulted and murdered so it's just it's this very weird and blunt and I, I think structurally kind of sloppy movie. It wants it. You can tell it sort of wants to be this like karmic blue collar story about how you know life in 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 small town Missouri can also resonate with what's going on in some of the bigger uh, inner city areas uh, in America. But to bring it back 
full circle, maybe, Jeremy, I actually kind of thought it, it, it had a lot of similarities with something like Crash. Like it was mm. it's sort of like a crash for the Black Lives Matter era. Like it thinks it's smarter oh. than it actually mm. is. Um, there is something to this idea that a lot of the characters are are very sure of their own moralities, and then when they try to assert their morality on someone else, they tend to butt heads. And, and the ending kind of upends that in what I found to be like a surprisingly beautiful moment in contrast to the rest of the movie. But in general, it's just it's it's very much a, a sort of a whiplashing experience, I think. Mm-hmm. Hashtag crash two is trash two. Okay, there we <laughs> there go. go. Now we're talking. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff, yes. We've talked for a very long time about film this year. So yeah, uh, thanks, David, for joining us. I'm glad you could mention those last films that we have not had a chance to see. And I think one of my goals with talking about some of these films is to highlight things that people may have not heard about or had a chance to see so um, and discuss some of that. And we'll, since I, I know I've been sort of cramming at the end of the year and this beginning of the year, the Oscars are sort of like my arbitrary like goal, even yep. though I always like regret watching them every year. But it's just like <laughs> a deadline for me to be like, I have to try to get through these films um, by this time. Uh, so we'll we'll continue talking yeah. about some of the stuff we've been watching a lot lately on next episodes. Yeah, and yeah. I'm I'm happy to hear that you like the Last Jedi so much, David, because mm-hmm. we'll probably do like one or two more episodes about it with some different <laughs> guests and different perspectives. So maybe maybe we'll have you back. Yeah, after the last awesome. Um, two-hour episode, we were like, <laughs> uh, we have a lot more to talk about. So, <laughs> Well, I, and I, again, I, I thank you guys for inviting me on. I, I, I actually am a fan of the show, and I did a fist pump when you guys name-checked uh, Shadows of the Empire on your Oh, Empire yes! Episode. Yes! So uh, the, the fact that I'm in such good company uh, is, is a real treat. Uh, I, I appreciate the, the thematic analysis you guys do, and um, it was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks for listening to the show, everybody. Mm-hmm.